try it again. Emily, if you want to hit four on both sides of that, we'll turn the floor lights up. Um, it is okay to clap in church, and they do an amazing job, and I absolutely love listening to them. So I'm going to give them a hand. I don't care if anybody else wants to or not. A couple of housekeeping things before we get started. Yes, Kent is right. I am wearing black because I am in mourning, um, and I will struggle through the rest of the day. Uh, I ask that you guys, if you would, be in prayer with me or for me, um, because I'm going to try really hard to cheer for Kentucky, and I just don't know that it's in me to be able to pull it off. So this afternoon during the game, if you guys think about it while you're praying, they don't miss a free throw, would you just pray, please let Neil actually cheer for Kentucky, because I'm just, I'm not sure I can bring it in myself to do it. Um, the other thing is that with the youth sitting up front, I am used to, if they get out of line on a Wednesday night, I just reach over and smack them in the head. So if you see a kid's head snap back, just don't think anything about it. They're fine. It's not going to be a big deal. Um, some of you who, who just know what I do and you don't know me are looking at this thinking, oh, I cannot believe they gave the youth pastor the microphone. And the rest of you who know me really well are specifically saying, I can't believe they gave that guy the microphone. So, because the youth pastor part of it doesn't scare many of you all nearly as much as, uh, as my background does. 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked up the side of a hill, flopped down, kicked off his Jesus sandals, and preached what was the greatest sermon ever given. And the Bible says is that when Jesus saw the crowds, that he began to teach them. Now, I did a lot of looking up, and I did some research, and you can't find a number. Scholars aren't going to take a guess at how many people was in it. But we know through the rest of Scripture that everywhere Jesus taught, everywhere he went, every time that he did something like this, he attracted enormous crowds, 4,000, 5,000. And the way things were recorded was that was men. So you're talking a crowd of 12. I, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility to assume that this circumstance worked out the same way that any other time Jesus decides he's going to teach a large group of people. 12, 15, 20,000 people sitting, listening on a hillside to the Lord teach. And one of the things that I think we overlook sometimes is the small miracles that are present in the Bible. We see the big ones, but we don't see the small ones. Think about teaching 20,000 people sitting on a hillside without one of these. How did everybody hear him? How did you carry a voice over 20,000 people who sat and listened to a sermon sitting on the side of a mountain? We overlook the little bitty miracles that are in, in the Bible. And I have this thing, I've had it since I was a little kid, I love to read, love to read. And God has gifted me or cursed me, depending on the way you want to look at it, with a very vivid imagination. And so I've had this thing since I was little, and I know the gift's not unique to me, I, I get that. Um, I lived right over here, grew up right over here, and there's a tree out in our front yard, I don't even know if it's still there or not. And you climb up and you can sit in the branches of this tree and you, can, and you can read. And I would disappear for hours on, on end. And I have had this thing since I was little that when I read, I can hear it in my head. And some of you aren't shocked that Neil hears voices in his head, but that's okay. I can hear it and I can see it. And it made reading awesome for me. Uh, it also made movies extremely hard to watch for me because I've never seen a movie that can do as good of a job of the book as the book that's in my head whenever I read it. And so whether it was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or the Zork books or whatever it happened to be, I could see those when I read through them. And the thing I didn't anticipate is when I came back to the Lord and I started to spend a lot of time in the Bible is that the same thing happens to me with Scripture. And we forget that 
These are real people with real emotions in a real place at real time. And they're not just blank words on a page. And when you read through the New Testament and you see where Jesus went into the temple and started throwing tables over and tossing people out on their ear, I don't think he did it in a calm, loving voice. Okay? I'm sure he went in mad and with emotion and screaming. And, and these things are all through Scripture. And so this is what's in my head as I read through this. If you guys have ever watched a press conference at a sporting event where they're interviewing the, the, the quarterback or they're interviewing whoever, you see this guy sitting at a podium with his hat on and, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. And then he stops talking or starts talking because there's a question asked off camera that you don't get. You just get the answer. Now, I don't know if this is biblically accurate or not, but that's what popped in my head as I read through this. As Jesus is teaching all, this, all of these people, and this reads more like a conversation than a lecture to me. And so someone from the crowd says, hey, I got a question. And Jesus said, sure, go. And he said, I want to be happy. Tell me how to be happy. What do I need to be happy? And Jesus starts through this, well, hey, I got, you know, there's some rules and some guidelines, and if you do these things, you will be happy. And that's what we read now is the Beatitudes, the start of the fifth chapter in Matthew. If you've got your Bible and you want to go along with me, we're going to spend most of our time there. That is Jesus' list of if you want to live a good life, if you want to live a happy life, here's the things that you should do. Do this and you'll be great. And we've been walking through this Celebrate Recovery series for the last eight weeks, and I think we told you guys up front that this was based on the Beatitudes, and we've gotten some feedback through the thing going, I get it, but I don't see the Beatitudes in this. I understand where you're coming from, but the scriptures that you all keep talking and citing aren't the Beatitudes. There are other stuff scattered all over the place. So part of what we're going to do today is walk back through this and tie it back to the Beatitudes. Step one was to realize that I'm not God. Well, that comes out of verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the people who can look at themselves honestly and go, you know what, I'm a mess and I have not got all this figured out. And I'm a little bit of a disaster and I'm kind of scared and I don't really know what I'm doing and I'm afraid if I admit that that I'm going to have a problem. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Earnestly believe. If you earnestly believe that God loves you and has a plan for you and wants to help you, that comes out of verse 4. For those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. And you may look at that and go, wait a minute, I don't see the connection. Explain the connection to me. Well, when you come to a place where you have to earnestly believe that God can help you and fix your problems, usually most people don't get to that place on their own, okay? Friends of mine that uh, are, in, uh, are in a different recovery program have a, have a uh, saying that says, you didn't get here by eating too many peanut butter sandwiches. And that's what this means. You don't get to a place where you need to believe that Jesus can heal you from your stuff unless you've got some stuff to heal from. Consciously choose to turn your life over to Christ. Happy are the meek. Whoops, I got ahead of myself. Happy are the meek. Verse 5. When we talked about this with the youth, the analogy that we used, and I actually tried to find one and I couldn't find one, was a yoke, like what they put on oxen or what they put on horses uh, whenever they're pulling plows. And... What this says is that you will be controlled by something in your life. What step three is, is your choice. I'm choosing the thing that is going to control me. I'm choosing to accept Christ 
Because Scripture tells us that the yoke doesn't go away. Jesus doesn't say, if you accept me, then you're good, and there aren't any rules or work to be done. He said, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is still a yoke present. You're just picking what it is, as opposed to being controlled by something in the world. Now, the term, happy or meek, I had a couple of people, anybody like big horse people in here? Have I got any horse people at all? All right. A broken horse is often called a meek horse. That's where this comes from. If you break a stallion, he's still a stallion. He still has all the power, all the energy, all the fire, all of the things that make him who he is. He's just controlled by something other than his own raw emotions. That's what this speaks to. Step Six, whoops, voluntarily submit. Sorry, got to hit myself again. Step six, examine your relationships. This comes from verse seven and verse eight. Blessed are the merciful. That's us when somebody who's hurt us comes to us and goes, man, I really screwed up and I'm sorry and I need forgiveness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers is when we know we did something stupid and we hurt somebody else and we go to them and we go, that was really stupid and I need your forgiveness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Reserve daily time. This actually, if you skip over a few pages, comes from chapter 6. This is when Christ modeled the prayer for us as we are supposed to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. It doesn't say our monthly bread. It says our daily bread. And you may look at that and go, well, duh. But we talk a lot in this culture about planning out, and that's cool. That's fine. I mean, I've got a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old, and we're talking cars, and we're talking college, and we're talking all this stuff, and we're talking things that are way out, and that's fine, but you don't live there. You don't live six months out. You live today, and the Bible speaks of this. It tells us to not worry about tomorrow because today has enough trouble of its own. Now, people take that verse sometimes and kind of twist it and think, well, that means I don't have to plan for anything. No, that's not what that means. That means go ahead and plan for stuff, but the things that are going to eat you are things that are going to happen to you today. They're not things that are going to happen to you 10 months from now. It's the things you're going to face today. So when you pray, you don't pray for the strength to handle something that might maybe be coming up in six weeks. You pray to get you through today. Help me be pure today. Help me to follow your will for me today. Help me to do the things I need to do to grow closer to you today. Which brings us to where we are today. This is the why, the yield, in the recovery acronym as you guys look at it. Yield myself to God to be used to bring his good news to others by my examples and my word. God wants to use your experience to help other people. God wants to use the pain that you've been through to help other people. God wants to use the hurts that you've dealt with and the things that you've worked through in your life to help other people. You see, when when we come to Christ, when many of us that that are Christians, when we came to Christ, we looked at ourselves and we went, hey, I'm really good at these things. Okay, God used that. I don't have a great voice, so the analogy doesn't really work for me, but God, I've got a great voice, and please use my great voice for your glory, and I'll do whatever you want to, God. Use my voice. And God goes, okay, sure, I'll use your voice. But God doesn't want to use your strengths to minister. 
God wants to use your weaknesses to minister. And here's what I mean. I can't relate to your strengths, okay? When Grant gets up here and tears a guitar apart and opens his mouth to sing and the Holy Spirit rolls out of him, I get into it and I cry and I raise my hands and I think, thank you, Jesus, but I can't do that, okay? That's cool to watch, and I love it, and I could sit and listen to Grant play guitar and sing songs for hours, but I can't do it. When Emily uncorks that giant, powerful voice and cuts it loose, I get goosebumps. But I can't do that. I don't have that. So while I see your gifts, and I enjoy your gifts, and I love your gifts, and I'm glad you've got it, Danny Willoughby lets me run sound occasionally, and I screw it up. I don't have the gift, okay? Danny Poole let me run video once, and he'll probably never, ever, ever do it again because it was awful. I don't have the gifts to do that. Fred and Terry Hoagland put so much time and effort into the stuff you see in here. I don't have that, okay? I can't love kids like Jeannie Tate does. I can't bring people into prayer like Kent does. I don't have that. But when you ask me to minister from my weaknesses, okay, well, I can understand that. Bob... Bob's got a totally different skill set than I've got, but Bob might have gone through something in his life that is similar to what I went through in my life, and I can go, wait a minute, I understand that. That can help me. When you start ministering from your weaknesses, you stop coming at people from a place where we're different, and you start coming at people from a place where we're all the same. I talk to the youth about this all the time. And we, we actually use this analogy. I have a friend of mine that looks at me every once in a while and shakes his head and shrugs his shoulders and goes, you ain't a snowflake. You're not unique. But we all think that. And I sit on Wednesday night in a room full of 60 kids, and every one of them thinks they're alone, and every one of them thinks they're going through something that nobody else has experienced, and every one of them thinks this, whatever's going on in my life is so unique and so special because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm special. And we're not. We're not any different. The same stuff that goes on in your life went on in somebody else's life. I guarantee it. But we don't share that with people because if we share that with people, it opens it up and we get hurt and then people might make fun of us. But one of the biggest lies that the devil uses to get us is he gets us isolated and he gets us alone. He gets in our head and he starts telling us the thing that you deal with, nobody else has. Who do you, you're, you're all by yourself. Don't share that with anybody. And when we minister in a church from a place of strength, that's what you get. You get a whole bunch of people who come in a door and sit in a pew and they put on a nice shiny church face and they go, everything's great. And then they leave and everything sucks. Excuse my language. But when you come at people from ministering from your weaknesses, people get that. And people can be helped by that. See, the real proof of when your recovery happens and the real proof of a life lived in Christ is when you stop being self-centered and you stop being selfish. When you stop worrying about my hurts and my pains and my problems and my issues and the things that I don't like and the things that I don't want and the things I wish would be different. When you stop worrying about that and you stop, start worrying about, okay, what happened to me was not fun. I'm glad I came out the other side of it. How can I go help somebody else with this? So as we walk through the rest of this today, we're going to do two things. We're going to talk about why God allowed our pain, and we're going to talk about how we can use that to help others. Why God allow my pain? There's a ton of reasons. We're going to talk about four of them. God's given me free will. God gave you the ability to make a choice. 
You can choose good or evil. You can choose right or wrong. You can choose life or death. You can choose heaven or hell. You can make good decisions. You can make poor decisions. God gave you a choice. God could have come and said, I want you to pray to me four times a day, and I want you to whip an incense ball around your head on Tuesdays, and I would really appreciate it if a couple of days a week you would throw something over your shoulder, and then we're good. That's all you have to do. He could have made us little puppets and made us do what we wanted to, but he didn't do that because Scripture tells us our God's relational God, okay? What God did is God came to us, and he said, here's, my, here's the deal. Here's my offer. Eternal life through my son who died on the cross and shed his blood for your sins. My direction and care for your life. An eternity spent with me as opposed to apart from me. Here's the deal. Pick. I take the kids back all the time in youth, and that's my job. That's my job as their youth pastor. My job as their youth pastor is not to be their spiritual mentor. That's a parent's job. My job as their youth pastor is not to babysit them on Thursday or Wednesday so that they have a really good time, although we do have a really good time. My job as their youth minister is to bring them to a decision point over and over and over again. Who do you say Christ is? Who's Christ to you? Who's he in your life? Because the fact is, is that Jesus either was exactly who he said he was, he either was the Son of God, and this makes people uncomfortable when I say this, Jesus either was the Son of God or he was an absolute raving lunatic. Because there is no middle. You don't take somebody who says, I am the Son of God sent to save the world, and look at him and go, eh, he was just a really good teacher, so I'm going to follow his stuff and not believe the other side of it. If you were to come into this world in this time and start to make those statements, we have a procedure for you. We put you in a little white coat and a little padded room, and we give you medicine to make you happy because you are either the son of God, who he said he was, or he's nuts. And that's what free will gives us. Free will gives us the place we have to make that choice. We have to decide who is Christ to you. And one of my challenges to you before you get out of here today is if you've not answered that question yet, answer it. And you have to answer it out loud. You've got to say out loud. You've got to say, Jesus Christ is who he said he was, or Jesus Christ is not who he said he was. But my job as their youth minister is I bring them constantly back to that point. Who do you say he is? Who is he in your life? Sorry, I got off on a shiny thing and chased a rabbit. God gives us free will. And he gives us the ability to make decisions. Now, as a consequence of that, sometimes we make really stupid decisions. And we do things that cause us pain. And I am convinced that 95% of the things that afflict us in this world are self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Most of the things that we suffer from, we did to ourselves through our own stupidity. And every time I say that to somebody, I'll have somebody come up after it's over with and go, well, you don't know what happened to me, and I didn't have anything to do with it. And You're right. There are cases in this world that are in the 5%, where you got hurt through absolutely no fault of your own. Because the flip side of this coin is that if God gave you free will, God gave everybody else free will too. So sometimes somebody else makes a stupid decision. They create havoc and chaos, not havoc and chaos, havoc and chaos in their life, and you get caught up in the collateral damage from that. And you think, well, God should protect me from that. Well, God could protect you from that. God could take away their free will. But if God's going to be a just and fair God, God has to take away yours too. And there's the problem. All right. 
Um, why does God allow my pain? God allows my pain to wake me up. Pain is a warning light. Pain is the smoke detector. Pain is the thing that screams at you, something is severely wrong, you need to fix it. That's what pain is. Some of you will get a personal prophet in your life who will come to you and will say, if you continue to do these things, this will happen. That's a warning light. All through the Bible, we get instances where God sends prophets to people and they go to them and they say, if you continue to do these things, calamity will ensue. And for the most part, people look at them and go, appreciate it, see you, go that way. Because we don't listen. And pain is the best teacher that we have. You don't stop doing something until the consequences for doing it hurt worse than you doing it. If you don't think I'm right, those of you that have got kids in this room have at some point in your life, when they were four, five, six years old, have uttered the following words, don't touch that, it's hot, it will burn you. What did they do? They touched it. They don't listen. I didn't listen either. And they don't learn the lesson until it actually hurts them and causes them pain. God uses our pain to teach me dependence. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He talks about being completely overwhelmed almost to the point of death, to the place that he couldn't depend on himself anymore, that he had to turn himself over and depend on God. Some of you all in this room have been through this. Some of you all in this room have been through an experience where you did something colossally dumb or someone around you did something colossally dumb and you ended up with friends that bailed, a job that left, family that said, I don't want any part of you anymore. And you come to a place where the only thing that you've got is you and God. I tell people that some of us are fortunate enough that we hear God when he whispers in our ear and some of us get tapped on the shoulder and we listen and some of us get our collars shook and we listen and some of us get hit with bricks. And when you get hit with a brick to make you pay attention to God, that's where you end up. That's where you end up. Sorry, I'm looking at the screen in the back. That's where you end up. You end up in a place where all you have is God and you've got nothing else. God uses my pain to give me a ministry to others. Pain makes me humble. It gives me empathy. It gives me a heart for other people. It gives me the ability to relate to somebody. Because no one can help someone who's going through something like somebody has been through it. Nobody can help somebody who's going through an ugly divorce like somebody who's been through an ugly divorce and survived it. Nobody can help somebody who's been through a life-threatening illness like somebody who's been through a life-threatening illness. Nobody can help someone who's lost a family, lost a parent, except somebody who's lost a parent. Nobody can minister to somebody who's lost a child like somebody who's lost a child. Nobody can help somebody overcome addictions like somebody who has overcome addictions. God gives us pain to teach us an opportunity for ministry. This is actually where this step comes from. This is the only one of the steps that doesn't come really directly out of the Beatitudes or very close to the Sermon on the Mount. 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. When I first came to this church and I started to work with the youth group, uh, Andrew, Andrew matched me up uh, with someone who has become very, very, very special to me. 
Uh, and I have asked Roland if he will come and, uh, and share his testimony with us. Okay. Uh, wow, that's loud. Isn't it? Public speaking is not my strong point. Um, I do get to speak to a lot of people every day at work, dozens of folks, but that's work. I get to speak to folks all over the world, and I get to travel all over the world and talk to folks. <coughs> but this this is different. This is this is personal, and that that's what it should be. That's where we got to get comfortable. Talking, to, we gotta get used to talking to each other on a personal level. Be able to take that person by the hand, come up front, and pour ourselves out. My whole walk through this started probably a year back or so. We had had communion, and the part in James five sixteen where it talks about you know to confess your sins to one another, and you'll be healed. And the prayer of a righteous man is effective and powerful. I'd read that, and I'd read it, and I'd read it. But until I actually obeyed and done what it said, I didn't get it. I had some things going on in my life, and you'll hear about a lot of it here. And a lot of it was just the past that I'd confessed it, but it was still in there. Andrew has talked a lot of times to the kids about you can't bury something that's alive. You have to put it to death because if you don't, then it keeps scratching its way back to the surface. It keeps coming back and keeps coming back and keeps coming back. So you have to put it down. And confessing your sins with another person and letting them pray with you through that part right there helps you to do that. So my prayer today is that you all get to see what Christ has done in my life through the darkness that he grabbed me from and even in the, what he's doing right now and freeing me from my past. So I just hope that you all get to hear and see the things that he's done in my life and, and make it a personal journey that you have. Make it... It's got to be that personal thing. It doesn't need to be a casual part where I come to church and I uh, listen to the sermon and I read what I'm supposed to and yada, yada, yada. It needs to be the personal part. It's got to get to the part where we become like Peter when he bowed off that boat when he seen Jesus sitting on the bank. And he tied his clothes around and he jumped off the boat and he swam. He left everything else behind. Get to the point where the psalmist said, you know, as a deer pants for streams of water, so is my, my soul does pant for you. we got to get to that point. So I just encourage you all, if you haven't reached that point, Find somebody you can talk to, somebody that you can trust. And the stuff that's inside of you, let it out and bring it to Christ and let him free you from those chains. Because I didn't realize how freeing it, freeing it was until I'd done it. On February 23rd, we all come in there and we got rocks. And I thought we was all going to throw them at people and stuff like that. That was pretty cool. But as we listened to my rock, I had it and my rock was control. I could control this. And this was my past. I could control this. It wasn't. I couldn't, I couldn't control it. It kept coming up, coming up. So I come up and I laid it down. And George came and prayed with me. Didn't know what he was praying with me for, but he came up there. And this was February 23rd. And since then, amazing things has happened. So I just want to encourage you all, if, if you have something that you've thought you've let go, but it keeps coming up, James 5.16 tells you to lay it down with somebody, confess it, let them walk through you with it. So here it goes. I wrote it down because, like Neil, I chase shiny things. So I might, I might take off in a different direction if I don't have something to follow. So I guess my testimony probably starts out like a lot of others does. 
I grew up in a household that was riddled with alcoholism and about every kind of abuse you could imagine. No matter what my sister and I had done, it wasn't ever good enough and we paid for it every night. I started drinking and smoking regularly when I was around 12 years old to deal with life in general. I was drinking and smoking on weekends and after school, but then it got to where I would leave school to drink. We lived in a house across the parking lot from our grade school. Both my parents worked, so I would sneak out at lunch and on breaks. I'd sneak across the parking lot, Dad's garage. I'd open his refrigerator up, and I'd drink his beer, and I'd smoke. By the time I was 15, I was smoking in front of both my parents, and my dad was buying extra beer because he was having to make up for what I was taking out of the refrigerator. But nobody said anything. I was also smoking pot. I was hanging out with folks that had harder drugs any time that I wanted it. By the time I was 16, my parents had divorced and I was on my own. My dad left. Mom had had such a freedom that she never felt in her whole life. She kind of done her thing, and I left me out. My sister and her husband tried to talk some sense into me, but I wouldn't have anything to do with them. I was 16 years old, beginning of my senior year in high school, and I was all alone. I didn't tell anybody I was alone, but I slept in my car, and I slept at friends' houses. I was totally dependent on myself. I'd shower in the locker room at school, and I'd do my clothes and home mech. I'd eat leftover lunches from friends at school. Folks, that's easier done than what you think if nobody's looking. It's easy to hide. In 1986, I graduated school, and I spent most of my senior year going from place to place, learning to solely to rely on my own wits and not trusting anyone. By the end of my senior year, I was drinking heavily before school, during school, after school. I was smoking pot. I was using crank and taking acid on most nights and every weekend. I also had access to opium and hash and cocaine on a regular basis. I was a train wreck and I had no place to call home. After graduating in 1986, I packed up everything I had and I drove to Florida to work construction. I was 17 years old, but I'd had years experience because my dad owned his own construction business and I worked it growing up. I found jobs quickly, but the addictions of the alcohol and the drugs followed me. Again, I was surrounded by people that had access to any kind of drugs you can imagine. Only this time I had access to crack. I was spinning out of control, but I didn't care. I didn't see any future for myself, and I didn't have any plans on seeing my 21st birthday. Everything and everyone around me I pushed to the edge because I didn't expect to see the next day. Over the next 10 years, I'd be married and divorced twice, homeless one more time, living in an old house during the winter with no water, no heat, electricity. I was surviving off recycled cans and turning in the returnable bottles to grocery stores. I had to choose daily between buying kerosene for an old heater I'd found, food or drugs. I didn't always make the right choice. I spent over a week in the hospital at one time I was malnourished, I was dehydrated, and I suffered from several other infections and ailments the doctors had found. But in the 1990s, I moved to Cloverport and I made amends with my mom. For seven months straight, I worked on a farm. I worked from the time I got up to the time I physically couldn't raise my arms anymore, driving another fence post, stringing fence, mending barns. I worked until I just couldn't stand anymore. I've done that for seven months. I never came to town. 
I couldn't take the chance of running into someone that I knew or running into someone that could tempt me. I was weak on my own. But in time, I did come to town. I got a good job, and I thought that I was okay. I thought I could control it. I thought I could handle it, but I was wrong. If you fast forward to 2005, I was still working a good job, but the drinking had returned. I was drinking beer and whiskey every day, and I was physically, mentally, and spiritually broken. I'd been in a church, attending a church in Hallsville for about six months because even going through all of the, the drinking, I still knew something was missing. I was missing a part of me inside that I could not get filled, and I knew that part was Christ. I knew it was, but I didn't know how to get it. On November 6, 2005, looking in the mirror that morning, shaving, getting ready to church, I was at a point to where I couldn't stand to look at myself. And I told God that morning, if you're ready for me, I'm ready for you. I went to church that morning. The first thing the pastor said was, today's the day you might not have tomorrow. And I looked at the lady sitting next to me, and I said, is there any kind of special music or anything that I have to work for, wait for? And she said, no, hon. If he's calling you now, is the time to go. I went down that morning, and I poured everything I had out on the altar. Everything I'd ever been through, everything I ever needed, everything I ever wanted, everything I ever had, I laid down that morning. I went home and told my wife that day I'd, been, I'd given my life to Jesus. I told everybody I'd come into contact for weeks what was going on. I was as free as I'd ever been in my life. I got baptized Easter morning of 2006. Shelly and I had been looking into adopting a child for a long time. But the experience and the long wait had really put us back in our, on our haunches. A few months after giving my life to Jesus, my wife called me at work. She said, do you still want to adopt? And without thinking, I said, yeah, sure. Yeah, boy, girl, I don't care anything. She had gotten a call that we were going to be able to adopt a baby when it was born, if we were still interested. So she started going to all the doctor's visits, and I started building the nursery, and we was just all over ourselves, and it was time for our little girl to get born. See, she was born November 6, 2006, a year to the day that I gave my life to Christ. He had looked into my heart the year before and seen what I needed. He, he knew I needed love. I wanted the chance to raise a child the right way, a chance to know the love of both parents. Instead, he gave me a little one to teach me unconditional love and patience and mercy and grace and trust. And you know, some folks say that God doesn't do miracles anymore, but I can look in that little girl's eyes every day, and I can see the miracle of life, and I can see the, hear the joy of her laughter, and I can see the unconditional love she has for me and my wife, the trust that she has for me and my wife. And these are two things that God seen that I needed to learn was love and trust. I wanted a child to raise in the eyes of God, and he gave me a child so he could raise me. In 2001, Donnie Sanders had spent hours and hours and months and months at work talking with me and praying with me and just planting the seeds. And finally in 2006, I came to a service here at Corinth. After a few months of coming here, I found a home and a family and a chance to grow closer to Jesus. 25 years before that, I was alone in the dark. 
Now I can look out in the family so big I don't even know all your names. That's only something God can do. I attended Corridor 101 with Jeannie Tate. Went through three discipleship classes with Jeannie Shelburne and Sharon, Sharon, Karen Shrewsbury as the teachers. And all these folks drew me closer to Jesus. And I seen the love each one of them had for Christ. And that made me want it even more. Corinth has been a major walk in my life with Jesus ever since. And it wasn't for Corinth opening its arms and accepting me. Folks, I'd be lost again. And this church has been a rock for me and my family and a stone in our foundation that we build on every day with Christ. I haven't had a drink in almost eight years. And he's working on me one defect at a time and one day at a time. My father is faithful to complete the work he started. I am a new creation. Thank you. I love you, man. Thank you. So if Roland hasn't convinced you that anybody can use what they've been through to help people and to win people to Jesus, if he's got you in a place where you're thinking, okay, i got some stuff in my past that I can, I can use to help people. So we're going to talk about how you do that. First thing you got to do is you got to write your story out. And I know what you all are thinking. You're looking at this going, what is it with you all in the writing in this series? I have had to write every single step. Yes, you've had to write every single step. And there's a reason for that. Something magical happens is something leaves your head and passes your hand and goes onto a piece of paper. Things that didn't make a lot of sense and things that kind of didn't fit together and were all jumbled up and you thought, I don't know how all that goes together. Things untangled themselves and they put themselves back together in a story that makes sense when you write it down. Before you get ready to share this stuff with somebody, I would strongly encourage you to do that. Get alone by yourself with a piece of paper and a pencil and God and sit down and spend some time in prayer and go... Show me what all I have been through. Show me what you healed me from. Show me all the lessons in this that I can help somebody with. Because God will bring somebody into your life for you to do that if that's the place that you end up in. Second thing, you've got to share your story with somebody. Galatians 6.2 tells us to carry one another burden, and in this you will fulfill Christ's law. If you go back and you read that, that is not an optional statement. It does not say, I would really appreciate it if you would help each other out. It does not say, please, if you have a little bit of extra time, could you maybe help somebody else through something? It is a command. Carry each other's burdens. And why? Why? So that you can fulfill the law of Christ. That's a pretty strong statement of why we are supposed to do these things. When you share your story, you've got to be humble. You've got to be honest. I have more than enjoyed, loved hearing everybody get up here and give their testimonies throughout this. Um, I'm going to warn some of you all, between now and the end of this sermon, I'm going to step on some toes. 
particularly some of you all that have been Christians a long time and have been coming to this church for a long time. Just please forgive me. If you don't like it, you can write, don't let the youth pastor preach again, and I will go back across the parking lot, and I'm good, okay? I love hearing these testimonies. And I love being part of a church that gives people the ability to stand up here and pour that stuff out and not point at them and not say, get away from me, and not say, well, I'm glad you're like that, but that's not me. Christ had a word for religious people who pointed at others and said, well, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. He called them snakes. I don't ever want to be part of a church that's full of snakes. I don't want to be part of a church that Jesus would walk in the door and go, why are you all pushing everybody out? What's the deal? Hearing people's testimonies reminds me of that. I don't ever get tired of it. I don't care if I've heard it 30 times. I don't care if I've heard it 40 times. I don't care if it's the exact same testimony. I have heard Mike Thomas's testimony so many times, and every time he tells it, I cry. I don't ever get tired of it. Jeannie Shelburne sits in that back corner, 8 o'clock service, every Sunday morning. I've heard Jeannie Shelburne's testimony 20 times. I cry every time she tells it. I've heard Danny Willoughby talk about that light switch that he built for Laura for a Christmas play that saved his soul because he made a light switch. And every time Danny tells the story, I cry. There are two problems, two kinds of problems in this world. There are you problems and there are me problems. And I'm going to be really blunt. If hearing people's testimonies about what God has done in their life gets old to you, then you need to go spend some, some time alone with God and start asking God, what's wrong with me? Because if you have a problem listening to somebody's testimony, I don't care if it's the 40th time you've heard it. If you have a problem hearing somebody's testimony out, that's a you problem. Because God loves it. And you don't know that there's not somebody sitting in the back corner that snuck in the door halfway through the music that you don't even know is here that needs to hear that. And I don't make any apologies for that. And I don't want anybody else to be part of a church that has to make apologies for it either. The last thing you have to do when you share your story with somebody is you can't lecture, like I just did. You can't lecture. God doesn't need you to be the Holy Spirit. He does not be, need you to be the prosecuting attorney. He does not take, need you to take the Bible and whack somebody up the head with it. And, youth, are you ready? And tell them that they're going straight to hell. He does not need you to do that. He's got the Holy Spirit for that. He's got it, okay? We're under control on that point. We got it. You love them, and you welcome them, and you put your arms around them, and you tell them the truth, and you tell them the gospel, and you love them where they are, and you let the Holy Spirit mold them into the person that he wants them to be. Celebrate Recovery Program, I'm going to be really blunt. Celebrate Recovery Program is going to bring a lot of people into this church that are going to freak a lot of y'all out. Okay? You're going to have people walk in the door of this church that have tattoos that start at their knuckles and into the top of their heads. And six months ago, they were in jail. Or two months ago, they were in rehab. Or three months ago, they went through a divorce where their husband beat them on a daily basis. And they walk through the door of that church and they need help. And it is going to scare some of us to death. It's going to scare me to death. As much as I like to act like nothing bothers me and everything rolls off my back, there's going to be people that walk in the door of this church that I look at and I go, I don't know how to do this. 
but I want to be a part of a church that goes, I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out. And come on in here. Because we need a whole lot more of those churches. We don't need country club churches. we got enough country club churches. There's enough places where if you don't make enough money or you don't dress right or you ain't quite shiny enough, we don't want you in this place. All right. Um, I'm going to have the band come up real quick if y'all want to come up and start to play. Um, Emily, would you hit five on both sides of that board, please? It's not on your thing is why I did it. I'm going to ask you all to do something that, quite frankly, may make some of you uncomfortable. And if you haven't figured it out by now, I don't really care. We're going to do it anyway. <laughs> so I'd like to ask you all to close your eyes. And as you hear me say something, if you hear me say something that hits home with you, I'd like for you to stand up. If God has rescued a relationship in your life that, seems apt, that seemed absolutely hopeless and there was no way it was ever going to be salvaged, please stand up. If God has healed you or a family member from a disease that you thought there was no escape from, please stand up. If God has given you a child when you thought none was possible, if God has rescued you or a family member from addiction, if God has healed a broken heart so deep that you thought you would never, ever be able to trust anyone ever again, Emily, turn the lights back on for me, please. Four, both sides. I want y'all to look around. Don't tell me miracles aren't real. Don't tell me that the God of the Bible that did all this stuff in the Old Testament that we look at and go, that doesn't happen now. Don't tell me that. Because you're wrong. You are surrounded in this room by miracles. I know it. I shave with one every morning. Every morning I look at a miracle and go, you're a really handsome miracle, and I shave. Don't tell me the God that parted the Red Sea, the God of pillars of fire and smoke, and the one that put the heavens in his hands. Don't tell me that God isn't active in this world because he is. And you all are proof of that. Here's what all of that means. Christianity is a full-contact sport. God didn't save your soul. God didn't rescue you from the gates of hell. God didn't pull you back from whatever mess which you were in for you to walk in the doors of this church and sit in a cushy red seat on your butts and stay there. It's time to go to work. It's time to quit playing church. Start doing church. Because we start down this road, and I'm telling you right now, God is going to bring people to this church that are going to scare us to death, and they are going to be awesome. But that's the gospel. It's dirty, and it's messy, and it gets kind of ugly, and it gets a little weird, and you don't know why. I don't know how I'm going to share this with somebody, but that's the gospel. And it's real. And it's awesome. So as a band plays, some of y'all got something that y'all need to deal with. Are we good? Did you break another one? No. <laughs> some of y'all have got something y'all need to deal with. Some of you guys have had God tugging on your heartstring for two or three weeks, and you have sat through 
God pulling at you, and you know that you need to get some stuff straight in your life, and you know that you need to accept Christ as your Savior, and some of y'all have sat on that urge for way too long, and today, as Roland said, today's the day. Some of you all have been sitting on a testimony like his that nobody else in this room knows about, that you need to come to terms with the fact that you need to share that with somebody, and you need to go into some kind of ministry and help people. Some of y'all need to walk across the room and hug a neck and tell somebody you're sorry and tell them you love them. As band plays through this, I don't know what God's working on you about. I have no idea. But I know don't walk out the doors of, of this place and not let the Holy Spirit call you. Don't ignore him. Don't do something different and put it aside. So as the band plays, you all respond as you see led.